So we're in a series epic, right? We're going through the Old Testament and to see how it all links to the New Testament. Are you with me? All right, all right, that's a little enthusiasm, that's great. Okay, so this is like a timeline, right? And so we started with creation and Adam and Eve and then the fall, right? And then people started multiplying on the earth and, and things got really dicey and God decided to judge the whole earth except for one person and his name was Noah. And so we talked about Noah and then at, as people repopulated from Noah's family, God then went from a, uh, the Old Testament went from a global perspective down to one man, and God called this one man out of the earth of Chaldees, and his name was Abraham. So God calls Abraham, and the focus is on his family, and God says through his family, the whole world would be blessed. And so Abraham has a family, and we talked a little bit about his grandson, Jacob, but mainly we talked about his great-grandson, who was actually sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers, and his name was Joseph. So Joseph is down in Egypt. He rises in prominence, becomes second only to Pharaoh. There's seven years of plenty, seven years of want has happened as, as he came into power. And he brings his father Jacob's clan down to Egypt and takes care of them during this seven years of famine. But then generation passes. There's a regime change in Egypt, and the, the people of Israel are multiplying, and they're enslaved, and that lasts for 400 years. And after that 400 years of slavery, when they grow from just being a family into a great nation, God raises up another leader, and his name is Moses. And Moses comes, and he delivers his people from Israel. We've all seen the movie. They cross the Red Sea. There's the plagues, all that stuff. Then they're in the wilderness. The most significant thing that happens there is he goes to Mount Sinai. He receives the law of God, the Ten Commandments, but also not just the moral law, but the judicial or civil law and the ceremonial or clean laws. So he gets all that stuff there. Then they are wandering in the wilderness. And after 40 years of wandering, which was caused by some disobedience and they're just not ready to go, God raises up Moses' assistant after Moses dies, and his name is Joshua. Boy, it is getting, I lost everybody on that. It's like we went from a few hundred people to like three people going, Joshua. Okay, give it. so Joshua, he leads the conquest of the land. They take Jericho first, uh, then they, they conquer them. They don't do it exactly the way God says, and that'll cause them some problems later. And then there's a period of judges, kind of informal leaders, but then Israel wants a king. Their first king is Saul, but mainly last time we focused on the second king, and his name was David. And so David assumes the throne and God actually says it's through David's line that the world will be blessed from Abraham's line. And so that's all on King David. Zach last week talked a little bit about how his 
so we're talking about succession now, how his oldest son Amnon actually raped his half-sister and his other half-brother Absalom killed Amnon and then Absalom fled and, and then David said he could come back and he did but he wouldn't see him and in the meantime Absalom gets a lot of people in Jerusalem sort of on his side and so things, and he actually revolts against David. It's so bad David has to sleep, flee for his life. But then as it turns around, he gets rallies some men behind him. He's always had, had his mighty men and, and others. And then they actually get the throne back. Absalom is then killed by David's commander, Joab. And then so Absalom's gone. Now David is an, an old man and now he's on his deathbed. And another son, Adonijah, he is, he's the oldest now, and he is ready to take the throne. He's so ready that while David's still living and on his deathbed, he sort of starts running things, and he throws this huge pre-inaugural party of him becoming king. So he jumps the gun a little bit. He invites all the key players, including David's most trusted general, Joab, and they all show up and they're partying there near Jerusalem, having a good time. And he invited most of his siblings, but he did not invite Solomon, who actually David intended to become king. So he didn't invite Solomon. He didn't invite Beniah, and that's, we'll get to that, and, and, and Nathan, the prophet. Anyway, didn't invite everybody, but he's solidifying his power. It's a big party. Everybody's having a great time. And while this happens, Bathsheba, one of David's wives, who's the mother of Solomon, their second child, Bathsheba, then, she goes to David and says, whoa, Adonijah is having a pre-inaugural party right now, as we speak. And then about that time, Nathan, the prophet, the same guy that confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan comes in, says the same thing. Hey, I don't know if you know this king, but apparently you must have said Adonijah is supposed to take over because he's having a party with all the key officials right now. David then takes action. He calls uh, not only Nathan, but the priest uh, Zadok, and then he also calls his most trusted mighty man, who's Beniah, actually his personal bodyguard, one of the mighty men of David, because Joab's gone, and he calls these guys together and he said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to right now, during this party, we're going to go publicly anoint Solomon as king. And so they do that. They anoint David's other son, Solomon, as king while David's still living. And so all of a sudden, this is a public thing and rejoicing breaks out in Jerusalem. In the meantime, at Adonijah's party, they're having a great time, but then they hear this huge commotion going on in the city of Jerusalem, and they soon figure out that the whole city's rejoicing because somebody has been anointed king at David's request, and his name is Solomon, which puts a major damper on Adonijah's party. People just kind of slink away into the night kind of a deal. Solomon now takes over. That's who we're mainly talking about today. Solomon, David gives Solomon some advice. Solomon consolidates his rule. But David has some major unfinished business that he passes on to Solomon, and that is the building of the temple. Now before this, at, when Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law, he was also instructed to build the Ark of the Covenant. 
You know, the raiders of the lost ark, melted faces, all that. Remember? Who's with me? Do you remember this? And, and that's pretty much the way it looked. The ark of the covenant, this gold box with two cherubims with wings covering this thing. And they had that and they didn't touch it. They had poles that they could carry it. Very special. And it really symbolized the presence of God. They built the Ark of the Covenant and then with also within the law was that they built a tabernacle, a tent, a tent around that Ark and then they had a larger tent around that, just the walls of a tent. And this was the tabernacle and they moved this all around the wilderness for their 40 years. After they came into Israel, they, they moved that around and the Ark of the Covenant was what they would took when they crossed the Jordan River. It's what they would take when they would have a major battle. And so he passes that on and Solomon then builds the first temple in Jerusalem right on Mount Moriah, which by the way was the same mountain where Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, although God wouldn't let him do that because God doesn't have uh, child sacrifices, but he was willing and God blessed him because of that. Now on that same spot, Solomon builds the first temple. Now, actually, that temple is going to be destroyed, and then Zerubbabel comes, and they build actually a second temple, temple that's not near as impressive. But then in the first, right before the first century, Herod the Great comes, and he greatly expands that and expands the Temple Mount. And so he makes the temple a lot better, but then it's destroyed in 70 AD, and we won't even get to that. Then there's a third temple, but that's all for future. But anyway, so that's the temple. All right, did you follow that? Are you with me? Kind of, yeah, okay. We'll get to that. So anyway, so the temple. Now, the main thing is after Solomon on this timeline, you have a kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon. But after Solomon, when Solomon's son, whose name Rehoboam takes over, the kingdom of Israel becomes divided, north and south. The northern kingdom is 10 tribes, and they follow another guy, and I'll tell you how that goes in a minute. And then the southern kingdom is called Judah, and they follow the line. So here's how that happens. David's son Solomon is very wise, but Solomon's son Rehoboam, very foolish. And so when Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes over the throne. All of Israel shows up to inaugurate him as king, so it's a big party, but the leaders of the nation of Israel, they have some things that they want to talk to Rehoboam about. And basically, it's because Solomon had built a temple and all these other things. It was a huge burden on the people, a lot of money, a lot of taxes, and then they all had to provide labor and all this stuff. And so the leaders say, you know, all this building stuff is pretty much done. We're asking that you lighten the load on us a little bit because it's become too oppressive. And if you do that, we're with you, 100%. And so uh, Rehoboam says, well, come back in three days, and I'll let you know. In the meantime, he then asks his father Solomon's advisors what he should do. And Solomon's advisors tell Rehoboam, do it. Yeah, this is reasonable. It makes sense. If you do this for them, they will follow you forever. But during the three days, he also asked some of his buddies that he grew up with in court, probably kind of spoiled guys, young men, and they say, don't do it, man. You should tell them you think Solomon was tough. I'm way tougher than him. I will rub you out or you're going to do what I tell you to do, kind of a deal. Well, we can only guess what he did, right? In three days, the leaders of Israel come back and Rehoboam says, I, you, you're going to do what I tell you. I'm going to squash you like a bug. And they say, 
I'm out of here. And they bolt. And in the first week of his reign, Rehoboam loses 10 tribes of Israel. 10 tribes, and he retains Judah. And then Benjamin, you're saying, well, that's only 11. Well, Benjamin is kind of split. But anyway, so from then on, Judah is led, the southern kingdom is led by the line of David through Rehoboam. And the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, they're led through another guy with a similar name called Jeroboam, who they choose as king in opposition. And then they're going to go to war, and God tells Rehoboam not to do that. And from then on, it's a divided kingdom, which is also kind of sad because of the northern tribes, the 10 tribes, they never have a godly king. They never have one king that really tries to follow God. And the Judah, the southern kingdom, they only have very few. Most, most of their kings also don't follow God, but at least some do. Northern kingdom, nobody does. Okay, got that all clear? All right. Solomon does great as king. And he does great because God gives him an amazing gift. God comes to Solomon just before he, he just as he's taking reins as king and says, What should I give you? Sort of like the genie in the bottle thing, right? You know, three wishes, and, and you know, you can't ask for more wishes. There's some rules there, but whatever. God comes to Solomon and says, what should I give you? And Solomon asks for wisdom. As a matter of fact, uh, we see that in King, 1 Kings chapter 3. And, and here's my question to you. What would you ask for? Not everybody would ask for wisdom. I mean, what would be first on your mind if God wrote you a blank check and said, what do you want? What do you want? Money, power, honor, respect, women. I mean, what is it? What do you want? And I'll give it to you. That's what, that's what God did with Solomon. Here it is, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning of verse 5. In Gibeon... The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So, Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing. Okay, and so that's the request. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice 
Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So God grants Solomon wisdom. And, and not only that, but because he asked for wisdom to administer justice, God piles on the things he could have asked for and didn't, riches and honor. So Solomon, he becomes, first of all, wealthy. As a matter of fact, during Solomon's reign in Jerusalem, the Bible explains to us that silver is devalued because gold is so common in Jerusalem. That's the primary mode of exchange. Super rich. He is honored. Uh, leaders of other nations travel to Solomon to sit at his feet and learn from him. And then when they leave, they say, wow, that whole experience of being with Solomon, it was better than even it was reported to be. I mean, how often does that happen, right? It was better than people said it would be. It was great. It's for women, which becomes a snare to Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women. But most of all, wisdom. I've got to wonder about the wisdom on the women thing, but wisdom, <laughs> you know, is, is what, uh, what God gave him. Now, define, yeah, some of you think that's funny, yeah. Defining, defining wisdom. How do you, de wisdom's kind of tough to define. One way to define it, and I don't know that there's any one best way, but one way to define wisdom is this. Seeing life from God's perspective. If we just see life from God's perspective, that's wisdom. Now, the other thing about wisdom is often it's wisdom and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom and knowledge are connected, but wisdom and knowledge are not identical. Knowledge has more to do with accumulating information Wisdom has more to do with how you use that information in an appropriate way. So knowledge is getting information. Wisdom is knowing how to use the information. Knowledge is, say, knowing how to fire a pistol. Wisdom is knowing when to use the pistol, you know, kind of a thing. Knowledge and wisdom linked, but they are different. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments. Wisdom obeys the Ten Commandments, right? Knowledge learns from God. Wisdom loves God. That's kind of the difference, how they shake out. Today, as, as much as any other time in history, we need wisdom for our lives today. Solomon had it. We need it. Because maybe more than any other time in history, we have more choices 
to filter through. Because of our wealth, because of our mobility, because of the country God's put us in, we have more choices, we have more things to decide than people before us. Even things like vocation. You know, in traditional cultures in the past, you just you did the vocation your father did. And you lived in the same little village your father lived in. And if you went to another village looking for a job, they would say, what are you doing here? Go back to, you don't belong here. Go back to your father's, you know. It was just, all this stuff was decided for you. Today, we have so much freedom that we need wisdom. And wisdom, by the way, is, the first thing about wisdom is if God has told us what to do, we apply that. So wisdom, it's applying what we know. So knowing what God says that we should do, that's knowledge. Doing what God says to do is wisdom. But today we have all these things that come up where no rule applies. So there's another way to define wisdom, which is this way. Knowing what to decide when no rule applies. No rule from God applies. I'll give you an example. comes up all the time. So say somebody comes in to one of our pastor's offices and they say, wow, I'm struggling in our marriage, in our relationship, and I'm trying to figure out if I should divorce my spouse. And then let's say the pastor says, well, has your spouse committed adultery? And they say, no. And then that pastor will say, then the answer is, no, you should not divorce your spouse because Jesus in Matthew 19 gave us a rule to follow. So no, don't divorce. So there, there it is, easy. But somebody else could come in and they, and, and they would say, hey, I'm trying to figure out, we're having marriage problems, trying to figure out if I should divorce my spouse. My wife or my husband has committed adultery but they're sorry, they're repentant, and I don't know what to do. Well, now, when we look at the rule, the rule says if your spouse has committed adultery, you can get a divorce, but God's not telling you you have to get a divorce. So now the rule doesn't help you with that decision. You need wisdom. You need wisdom. So when there is no rule is when you need wisdom to figure out which choice would actually be best. When there's a rule, wisdom is just obeying what God said. But when no rule fits, wisdom is figuring out the best choice when no rule applies. So I'll give you an example of how this shows up in Scripture. How many of you have ever debated somebody about God or, or something like that, and it's just like an endless debate, and, and you, you, it just kind of frustrates you? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, you talk about God, and then you're wondering, should I do this? Should I keep doing this debate or not? Because it doesn't seem to be... Anybody with me? Yeah, it comes up all the time for a lot of us. Well, actually, Solomon wrote a proverb dealing with this. And so bear with me here. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. I'm not saying call people names, but just hang on there. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. So basically Solomon's saying, hey, if you're talking to a foolish person, 
Don't answer them. Just let it go. Don't debate them. Stop it right there. But the, next, the very next verse, verse 5, says this. Answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. So do I keep talking to this person who doesn't believe in God? Solomon says, yes and no. Well, how do we know which verse to apply? No, don't do it, or yes, do it. We need wisdom. Wisdom will answer that question for us. Is this going to be profitable or not? We need wisdom. Now here, there's a famous story that's an example of Solomon's wisdom, and you've probably all heard it, but I want to read it to you anyway. Is that all right? Okay, it's in it's all right for about 50 of you. Is it all right for the rest of you? Can you bear it? Hang in. All right. So this is in 1 Kings chapter 3. And if you hate the idea of me reading it, you can read along for yourself. 1 Corinthians. First, did I say Corinthians? 1 Kings. No wonder. I'm throwing everything out. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Here's the story. Then two, So Solomon's on the throne. And... The, the king is also kind of like the Supreme Court. But anyway, then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son, whom I had borne. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one. My son is the living one. The king said, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king. For she was deeply stirred over her son and said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and, and by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall neither be mine nor yours dividing. Then the king said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So here you have a tragic accident turns into an impossible court case. One woman's word against another woman's word 
No corroborating evidence at all. Nobody's there. Nobody else is around. Just two people saying two different things. And a life is at stake. An impossible court case. Impossible situation. But then Solomon makes this brilliant move to reveal their true hearts. And when he does that, one woman's mother's heart is revealed as she says, no, 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 do not harm the child. And it's brilliant. And Solomon identifies who the mother is. And as you start thinking about it even more deeply and you start thinking, well, what, you know, what are the options here? You start realizing it's more brilliant than you think. Because because let's just say we're, let's just say Solomon got it wrong. Let's say it really was the second woman's child, you know, that that the first one was not telling the truth. Even then, you have a king deciding, and when it comes to this life of the baby, one mother's like, no, 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 spare the child. And the other lady is like, divide him. And if she was the mother, which she wasn't, she would not be fit to be a mother, right? It's like it's, it's brilliant on the surface, and it's brilliant the deeper that you think about it. And the people of Israel are like, whoa, this guy's good. He knows his stuff. What about us? You see, we need wisdom. We need wisdom today. We're faced with more choices. Our lives, first world lives, let's put it in context, but can be more complicated, although easy compared to third world lives. But we need wisdom. How can we get wisdom today? How can we be assured that we are doing the wise thing as we make choices in life? Well, the way we do that is the way Solomon did that. We come to God in fear, which is like in reverence, in respect, in awe. We come to God in fear with humility. And the more we see God as he truly is, the more humility we will have. So those are linked. We come to God with respect and humility because we see God is God transcendent. And I am me, a speck of dust. So we come, first thing, you want wisdom? Come to God with respect and humility. Proverbs, written by Solomon, says, 1-7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9-10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Solomon fears God. He loves God. He fears God. And he comes to God knowing God is God and he's not. And we see this in his request to God. He says, I am but as a little child. He's actually about 20 years old. And he's saying, hey, God, You've done all these things for my father David. You've been faithful. 
And I'm, I'm like a kid. I'm like a snot-nosed kid, don't know how to go in or out. That's how he approaches God. And God rewards him because of his humility. Contrast that, David's son, Solomon, wise. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, not so wise. Rehoboam does not have awe of God. Rehoboam's just out for himself. Rehoboam's not humble before God. And Rehoboam's not humble before people either. Solomon is not only humble before God, Solomon is humble before people. How do we know that? Because the king of Israel, who is over millions of people, actually decides to hear a case between two prostitutes. Most kings would not do that. Most kings have better things to do with their time, they would think, right? Solomon is not only humble before God, he's humble before people, and he agrees to see the, to, to hear this kind of a no-win case between two prostitutes in Israel. And he gives them their time and attention, and he judges wisely. Rehoboam, on the other hand, Solomon's son, it's the opposite. He's not humble before God. He's not humble before people. I mean, the leaders of Israel come and say, hey, we'd like you to adjust a few things, but we're with you. And then he's like, oh, let me, I'll think about it. And then he talks to Solomon's advisors, and they're saying, yeah, you should do that. They're right. They're absolutely correct. Do that, and these people will stick with you for your entire life. But then he talks to his buddies, and he decides not to. He's not humble before God. And he's not humble before people either. Secondly, when we come to God in humility, we also come remembering God's purpose for our life. When we ask God for wisdom, we need to come to him humbly, but we also need to couch everything we're doing remembering that God has a plan, God has a purpose for our life. That's what Solomon does when he's saying, wow, Thank you, you've just made me king to lead your people, and because they're your people, this is even a bigger deal than any other kingdom in the world, and so I need help. It's the same for us. When we ask God for wisdom, we come humbly, and this will change the way we ask things, and it may change what we ask for. It will make us wiser just in how we approach God, we come humbly, but we come remembering that God has a specific purpose for our life. So come to him humbly. Come to him remembering that God has purpose for your life. And then the third thing, and this is it, just three things, is we come to God asking for wisdom. We ask God for wisdom in and believing his promises. We come to God humbly. We remember God has a purpose for our life. And then we ask in faith. We ask in belief that God will keep his promises. We trust that God will keep his promises. I mean, Solomon, he was a slam dunk after that. And it even involved a dream. And you're thinking, well, how unreliable is that? Solomon believes. You know, Solomon's in. And when we need wisdom, 
And, and I know some of us are, are, are we're, we're in here, we're sitting here going, well, yeah, Solomon got wisdom because God said, what do you want? I'll give it to you. But we forget God's offering us the very same thing in the New Testament. The book of James, interestingly written in a wisdom literature kind of a style from the Old Testament. Book of James, first chapter. What does he say? Hey, if anyone, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, right? James chapter 1, I'd like to read that for you, beginning in verse 5. But if any of you, if any of you, who does this apply to? Anyone. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. He's not going to scold you. He gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith. This is ask and belief. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect anything, expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The same promise. It's to us. God said, what do you want, Solomon? He said, wisdom. God said, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. Selfishly, you ask according to your purpose in God. I'll give you the rest. Even the woman in the story, it's her baby. She gives up her motherhood and joy. Why? For somebody else, for the child. And what does she get in return? Motherhood and joy back. We cannot outgive God. We come to him, he's, he's inviting us as believers that if we lack wisdom for anything to come and ask him, who's the, the, he know, he's all wise, he has all wisdom, we can ask him and he will give to us generously without reproach. He's not going to scold us. He'll give us generally, generously without reproach. But we've got to ask, believing God's promises. And there it is. Wisdom for your life today, available from God. He's waiting for you to ask. He doesn't have just so much wisdom to give out and he's going to run out. Or how big of a piece of the pie. He is infinitely wise. There's no pie He's inviting us to ask him. We just have to come to him. Respecting him in humility. We come in humility. Remembering that God has a specific purpose for our life. Which is to glorify him. And that we need to ask. Believing in God's promises. And if you don't believe in God, if you don't respect God, forget wisdom. You can attain knowledge. You can accumulate a lot of knowledge. You can know a bunch of stuff. But you will not be wise in how you 
apply it because you don't have wisdom from God. We all need wisdom, but so often we don't ask, and then we start making decisions on our own. And God not only offers wisdom, he offers us himself to live with us, do life with us, come into us by his Holy Spirit. I mean, live life with God. That's what he wants.